You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. We are in the book of Acts, and uh, uh, let me set the context for today's reading. Stephen has been killed. Stephen, uh, the church's first martyr. And in the wake of his death and under the leadership of one Saul of Tarsus, uh, who would become later uh, Paul the Apostle, uh, a great persecution has uh, broken out against the church. And so Christians are scattering. They're scattering out of Jerusalem um, and into Judea and Samaria. Just what God wanted, actually. And that brings us to our text today, uh, which is Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in the bulletin for you. And I'm going to ask you once again, if you're willing and able to stand, it's a long reading, uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is God's word. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem 
preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray before we begin. Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts this morning that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Saul of Tarsus, working hard to destroy the church, is like a person, was like a person, trying to put out a grass fire by stomping on it. I don't know if you've had that experience. It's a scary one. You start stomping on a grass fire, and what happens, of course, is you're sending sparks everywhere, and the fire only spreads. Now, that's what Saul was doing with the church. You know, in the Bible, being dispersed like that, scattered like the Jews were in the exile, that's normally a sign of judgment. It's a judgment on the ones who are scattered, dispersed, right? But not here. The pattern's reversed here. The scattering of the church here is judgment, but it's not judgment on those who were scattered. It's judgment on the scatterers, people like Saul of Tarsus, who would uh, oppose the church, who would try to get in the way of Jesus' program for the church. You might remember his program for the church, Jesus, is uh, in Acts 1.8, where he told the apostles, uh, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's Jesus' program for his church. And it's what we see beginning to Uh, come to pass right here. And anyone who would oppose it, anyone who would stand in the way of Jesus' program for the church uh, will not stand, right? Uh, There is judgment here. Uh, The church will not be stopped. It cannot be stopped. Uh, It is an extension of the body of Christ himself, right? It's It's like, you know, how do you stop? How do you stand before the power of God? You don't, and that that should encourage us. Uh, The church goes through hard times, yes, but uh, it is not stopped and it's not defeated. There are three big things going on in this text that I want to hit with you this morning. First, proclaiming Jesus. Second, missing Jesus. And then third and finally, grasping Jesus. Okay, proclaiming. Jesus missing Jesus and grasping Jesus, first proclaiming Jesus. This is in verses 4 through 8. To those of you who think I'm the minister uh, and you're not, you need to particularly hear this one, this point. Uh, And the point is this, the primary agents uh, for the spread and the growth of the church of Jesus Christ are Christian lay people. That's you. As lay Christians, uh, we're spreading out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria to avoid the persecution. They continued to do what you do, right? Just do their normal life. They settled into new homes. They they got back to work. 
And so as they're just going about life, doing life, like you all do, they proclaimed the news of the good news of the word to the people they met. That's really a more literal translation of verse 4. They proclaimed the good news of the word to the people that uh, crossed their paths. Now, Luke expands on that message a little bit as he explains to us what Philip said. Verse 5, he said, Philip proclaimed to them the Christ. Christ is, is Greek for uh, anointed one, which is um, in Hebrew, Mashiach, anointed one, Messiah. So he's, he's proclaiming to them the Messiah. In verse 12, uh, it says he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So listen, Christian friends, what you have the responsibility and the privilege of proclaiming Right, the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. That's what gospel means. Good news. And the good news is that God has finally come to earth in the Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus is now the living and reigning king. And he's in the process of establishing and building his kingdom even now on earth, restoring all things, making all things new through you, through your testimony and your jobs. King is not another egotistical tyrant, but the people of Israel had seen enough of them. Uh, He is a loving father who came not to be served, but to serve. Like a king king like nobody had ever seen, right? And he loved us and he served us, how? By living for us and dying for us. And in doing that, saving us from God's just judgment against our sin for all time, right? Opening up the way for you and me to have a life with God starting now and going on forever. Let me give you a little sidebar here. Um, In the reading, uh, even though we're dealing with verses 4 through 8, I want you to see that in, in verses 14 through 18, you may have noticed that Luke tells us that uh, uh, the apostles who, who were not scattered, the apostles stayed back in Jerusalem. Uh, and they got word that, that you know, these, all these Christian lay people have been evangelizing these Samaritans and they've come to faith. They're believing and being baptized. But they had also heard that they had not received the Holy Spirit. So, uh, so they send two apostles down there, Peter and John, down, or up, actually, up to Samaria. Um, and... Uh, to, to put their hands, to place their hands on these Samaritan believers and pray for them so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. This, with apologies to those of you who, who may not be Christians here, this is a bit of an in-house discussion for a moment, this sidebar. 
Uh, because, as you probably have picked up, Christians, right, this text, this episode, has been at the center of a, a major bone of contention among Christians for a long, long time. And the issue is, is Christian salvation a one-tiered process, or is it a two-tiered process? Is it a one-tiered process? That is, you repent and you believe, and, and at that point you receive the Holy Spirit. Or is it a two-step process where you repent and believe in Jesus Christ? You become uh, a Christian, but then you have to go through a second transaction, uh, call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where uh, hands are laid on you or prayer is made for you and you receive the Holy Spirit in a separate subsequent transaction. Now clearly that's what happened here, right? This was a, with the Samaritans, was a two-step process. The issue, the question is, is that normal or is it extraordinary? Now, I, this, this isn't a seminary class and I don't have time to make the biblical case here. Let me just drop to the bottom line. Um, when you go through the scriptures, this, it's manifestly clear that the normal process of salvation is one-tiered, right? You repent, you believe in Jesus, and at that moment, the Holy, you are invested with the Holy Spirit. He comes, he comes into you. So if you're a believer here today, you, you f- are fully possessed by uh, the Holy Spirit uh, of God. Um, But why didn't that happen here? Well, we're told it didn't happen here precisely because it's extraordinary. If it was normal, Luke wouldn't have had to say anything. But because it's extraordinary, Luke highlights it. And the reason it's different here is because when these Samaritans believed and were baptized, there were no apostles around. And and the apostles, so, so there was a delay, the Holy Spirit delayed until the apostles could get there to authenticate, to be authenticating witnesses of what had happened. You see, it's because what's happening here is, uh, you know, in Jesus' program, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, we're, we're hitting a, a cultural, racial barrier here, right? The gospel is crossing it. And there had been centuries of, of discord uh, between Jews and Samaritans. The, 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 they, they despised each other. Uh, great religious and cultural divides. And it would have been very hard for the Jewish Christians Get, you know, steeped in, their, in, 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 in the Jewish worldview to accept the fact that Samaritans were now Christian brothers and sisters without the authenticating witness of respected apostles, right? The men who knew Jesus, who'd been with Jesus, who would wa- see, be there and witness the Holy Spirit coming on them and then be able to testify, witness to the church, yes, the Samaritans have received the Holy Spirit, we must embrace them as Christian brothers uh, and sisters. Um, we'll see the we'll see the, the 
the same thing just a little later on in Acts when the next uh, uh, barrier is crossed in Jesus' program from Samaria to the ends of the earth when the Holy Spirit comes to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and his family. Peter goes there also to witness uh, his reception of the Holy Spirit. So he is then able to go back and report to the church, the Holy Spirit has now fallen on the Gentiles. Right? Again, something that would have been hard for the Jewish Christians to accept uh, without that authenticating witness uh, of the apostles. So you see what we've got here? He's got extraordinary sort of unrepeatable circumstances as Jesus' program for the church gets, uh, gets launched. Um, so the apostles have, you know, their witnesses. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. And, and, and what we discover now is that they're witnesses in two different senses, right? They are witnesses in the sense that we are, that we testify uh, about Jesus to unbelievers, right? But they also are witnesses in the sense that they testify to the church as attesting witnesses, authenticating witnesses, uh, giving the church assurance that the people that are in the church should be in the church. You see that? Now that's not the same, but it's similar to what your elders do, your pastors here at New Life do. We kind of have that dual sort of witnessing function, right? We, we, we're, it's on us to witness to unbelievers just like it's on you. Uh, but it's also on us to, to be authenticating witnesses and we, uh, t- for, the, for the assurance of the church. And so when we oversee membership, when we interview everyone for membership here, when, when it's necessary, when we exercise the discipline of the church, uh, we are we are being we are able to authenticate to you imperfectly because we're imperfect we're sinners but authenticate to you as best we can that the church really is made up of people who who know and trust in the living Jesus. Um, and we we see the multitasking here going on right Peter and John come down or go up excuse me my geography. Um, they go up, they, they authenticate the, 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 that the Holy Spirit has fallen on the Samaritans. Then it's their, now their job's done. They, they head back to Jerusalem, but on their way back down, what do they do? Verse 25 says they hit all the Samaritan villages witnessing the, to, to the unbelievers there. So you see, there's that, that double witnessing function. Okay, end of sidebar with, with apologies to, to those of you who... Uh, you know, aren't in-house on the, these sorts of issues. But I, whenever we, you come across this, I'll, I'll, we'll get those questions like, hey, you never, you never laid hands on me to receive the Holy Spirit. Why not, right? That's why. Three quick closing applications here on proclaiming Jesus. Um, first, remember you... You people, each one of you, you're the frontline evangelists uh, of the church. You, you get into places, you get to people that I and the other pastors will never get to. Right? 
So make the most of the mission field that Jesus has given you, whether that's in your neighborhood, whether that's in your school, whether that's in, in, uh, in your work, in your job. You're going to be talking to people that I'll never get to. Second application. You know, you know, we know, we all know, we're living in an, in an age of, uh, of widespread, entrenched uh, unbelief and actually hostility to Christianity. That may describe some of you here this morning. Um, but e- even though there's that sort of entrenched unbelief and opposition to Christianity, those same people uh, are feeling and experiencing fear and discouragement and um, cynicism. Why? Because the things that they have been trusting in, political leaders, political institutions, education, technology, military, things, things that they thought would uh, you, you know, b- b- bring a, a, a safe and healthy world aren't doing that, right? These things aren't proving to be the, the, the answer that they'd hoped they would be. You have the responsibility and the privilege of telling those people about the king. That, they, that there is a living and reigning king they may not know at all anything about. A king who will never let them down. A king who is managing the affairs uh, of the world with truth and righteousness and humility. A king who can guarantee the destiny of their lives. That's a powerful message today. As all our other saviors are falling by the wayside. And then third and last application. You know, this is a call on you to be something pretty cool. And that's a joy bringer. I mean, is there anything... I mean, one of the best things in life, right, is, is being able to bring joy to another person. Isn't that great when you have that opportunity to do that? Um, it brings such joy to see that you've brought joy uh, to someone else. Well, when you give people the gospel, and, 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 if it, and, they, and they believe it, right? You will be bringing them, giving them a deep and profound joy that will never go away, right? Verse 8, I love what, it, what uh, Luke records about uh, the city of Samaria. He says, there was much joy in that city because believers just like you had been in it and giving people the good news. They were joy bringers. Who doesn't want to be a joy bringer? Okay, Okay, that's the first one, proclaiming Jesus. Second, missing Jesus. This is the most of the the text is about missing Jesus. And uh, and it's verses 9 through 24. Uh, And this, unfortunately and sadly, is what Simon the magician did. He missed Jesus. Now, you know, you, you sat or stood through this reading, uh, and you might think, you know, what are, we, what are we doing here on Thanksgiving weekend in 2022, reading about, you know, some ancient practitioner of the dark arts in northern Israel? 
I mean, what possible relevance does this Simon uh, have to me? Uh, Actually, a lot. Uh, because Simon is, if a bit crass, he is still a brilliant and clear representative of, of the default human condition. He gives us, he gives us an amazing look in, in the mirror. When you look at Simon, in many ways, you see yourself. Um, and uh, it's because we're... Listen, people's, the motherboards of human beings have not changed since the fall, right? Simon's motherboard was the same as your motherboard. We're all hardwired, unfortunately, for sin. We're, and that sin, sin essentially, is, is to, is to uh, process everything about life through the lens of self Self-interest. We all do it. It's how we are wired. Um, what's good for me? What's fun for me? What's enjoyable for me? What will be most meaningful to me? What will maximize my power, my pleasure, my money? Uh, you can see Simon's own self-focus all over here, can't you? Right, verse nine. He's he's a self promoter. Right, he he boasts that he's somebody great. Uh, verses nine through eleven. He liked being paid attention to. That's that's an interesting word that gets repeated here. I think three or three or four times in this text. Be, be paid attention to. He loves being paid attention to. He loves amazing other people, which leads to being paid attention to. Uh, he, he loves being praised. He loves titles. And he had an amazing title. Right? The power of God that's called great. Verse 13. Uh, he, was, he was dedicated to his self-improvement. Um, he... He, uh, it says in uh, verse 13 that after he believed and was baptized, uh, he, it says he continued with Philip. That's a polite translation. It, 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 the, the word actually translates to something more like he attached himself to Philip. Right? The, what's communicated here is that he saw something in Philip he wanted. He saw something in Philip uh, that he wanted to get from him. It's sort of like he attached himself to him as a mentor. I'm going to get everything I can from this guy right now. Right? I mean, sounds like, you know, us today. Uh, so he attaches himself to Philip. And what, what impressed him about Philip? It wasn't so much Philip's message. It was what Philip was doing that got so much attention and got praise and got amazement from people. And it was the signs and wonders he was doing, Right? And, and, and uh, Simon wanted in on that. So he attaches himself to Philip. I'm going to learn this. I'm going to get this, right? And, and then you see it, same sort of thing in verses 18 and 19. That's, that dedication to, to self and self-improvement. He puts his money where his heart is and says, look, I'll buy this power. You know, this is an amazing power. Here's, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. To get this power, 
Yeah, you see, the, the thing about Simon's description is that it is depressingly normal. Right? I don't want you to look at Simon and sort of shake your head and go, man, what, a, what an idiot. Right? What an ingrate. Um, or cluck your tongue at him and say, boy, you know, he should have known better. Look, it's, he's like we are. It, you know, he, he's wired the same way. It's, that's why I say it's depressingly normal. And of course the problem is, probably even more in our culture than in Simon's, is that our culture will not do anything from discouraging you from being like Simon. Right? In, in fact, just the opposite. The, our, our culture does everything to enforce your appeal to yourself, your appeal to self-interest. Right? Self-interest is what drives social media. It drives the movement of money. It drives power. It drives consumption. All about focusing uh, on yourself. The world, our culture is not going to you know, break you out of a Simon-like self-focus. It won't. It'll encourage it. So there are two big problems with living like Simon which means living like we all would unchecked, right? Living according to our default condition. Uh, and I, I, I want everybody to hear this, but I want particularly you younger people to hear it as you're, as you're making decisions that are going to have long-term consequences about your life. And you probably more than, certainly more than my generation, are being influenced by social media, and, and it's really encouraging you in this life of, of a, sort of an unchecked, okay pursuit of self-interest. And there are two real big problems with that. Problem one, that default life of pursuing self-interest ends up making you a small person. You're a small person. Now you... you you, you'll probably end up having comfort and wealth and power and, some, and a measure of freedom because money gets you a kind of freedom, right? Um, but at the end of the day, even if you get those things in the pursuit of your self-interest, at the end of the day, and I'm going to paraphrase the late uh, American writer David Foster Wallace, uh, you, you will only be... Here, here's, here's what you'll be if you pursue self-interest unchecked. You will only be, he says, the lord of your own tiny skull-sized kingdom. Alone at the center of all creation. That's why he was a writer and I'm not. Skull-sized kingdom. Right? Listen, friends. Christians and those of you who aren't Christians. You are made in the image of God. Right? And because of that, you have a dignity. You have a worth. Uh, you have a significance. You were made for bigger and greater things than ruling your own skull-sized kingdom. It's the problem. We've got too many people 
running around living in their skull-sized kingdoms. That's the first problem. Second problem is that with this life of uh, Simon-like life of self-interest, is that if you can, if you pursue it, not only will you be small, but at the end of the day, even if you've got money and 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 the things that money can buy, you're going to end up bitter and enslaved, bitter and not free. That's what Peter was getting. At when he told Simon in verse 23, I, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Right? You're in, you're in the jail of sin. You may think you're free, but you're not. You're a bitter, bound up man. You know, when we pursue ourselves and, and the things that build up ourselves, like money and beauty and power and whatnot, um, you'll be enslaved and those things will eat you up. They will eat you up. Here, I'm going to go back to David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace, I don't know if you guys, many of you will know him, some of you won't. He, he's dead now. He, he committed suicide age 48 or 49. He was a professor at Pomona College, um, professor of English. He was a brilliant writer. Uh, he was an alcohol addict, drug addict, um, interested in spiritual things, but not a Christian, and, um, but had amazing spiritual insight. Um, and I'm quoting from... Um, Maybe one of his most famous things, he, he, it turns out, I mean, he wrote some great books, but maybe he's, most, he's best known for a commencement speech he gave in 2005, three years before he committed suicide. This, he's talking to college students in 2005, and I want you to hear this, and, and, and hear the spiritual insights of an unbeliever. This is not a Christian, Okay? He's looking out at these college students and he says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. He was raised in an atheist family. Both his parents were vigorous atheists and insisted on his atheism. Um, He says, there's actually no such thing as atheism in the grown-up world. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, 
being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Well, I can relate to that last one. I spent so much of my law career worried that I was going to be discovered. It was the fraud I was. That's a description of Simon, but, but friends, it's a description of all of us um, if, if, if we worship those things. And, uh, you know, Simon was all about amazing people and being paid attention to and being seen as great and powerful. And yet, what happened to Simon? Somebody greater came into his life, right? So a more powerful power came into his life. Something getting, or someone getting more attention than he was came into his life. It will always be that way. I've often wondered what, it, what it's like, what it, what it was like to be a rising professional golfer in the 90s. Maybe one of the best golfers in the world. And then a skinny kid named Tiger Woods shows up. Who's playing a totally different game. And you become average. You know, it, it always happens. And if that's what you're worshiping, if it's all about being the best, being the greatest, when the, someone greater comes along or more powerful or more beautiful or more rich your life's going to fall apart. Simon's life fell apart. And it fell apart because he had actually missed Jesus. Now you'll say to me, wait a minute, it says here that he believed in Jesus and he was baptized. Yes, it does. He professed faith in Jesus, but he didn't possess Jesus. More accurately, he was not possessed by Jesus. You can't read this account without picking up the, the, the truth that, that Simon was, was all about Simon and that he's trying to use Jesus to get what he really wanted, to get the fame, the money, the power that he really wanted. It's so easy to use Jesus that way, but friends, God will not be used It's not about us. It's not about our reputations. It's not about our fame and honor and glory. It's about His. And so at the end, Peter tells Simon um, there to, um, he says in verse 20, may your silver perish with you. Again, that's a good translation. Um, there's a better translation. J.B. Phillips uh, translated this in a way that's so powerful that it's actually made it into the lexicons. Um, and Phillips' translation is to hell with you and your money. And, and Peter is actually using curse language. He's pronouncing a curse. That's not just a throwaway phrase. To hell with you and your money. Because you haven't, you have not, uh, your heart is not right with God. It's not straight, it says literally, with God. 
says, you better repent and ask the Lord for forgiveness. But what, what do you see? Simon doesn't do it, does he? He doesn't. He says, you do it, Peter. You do it. Friends, it's a sad, pathetic, bitter ending for Simon. And, and my prayer is that none of us, uh, that Simon's story may never be our story may never be your story. And it won't be if you do the last thing. Do what Simon didn't do, and that's grasp Jesus. Grasping Jesus. You know, th- this, this text focuses on really two people, two men, right? Philip and, and Simon. Um, Philip was essentially a layman. He was, right, he was one of those with Stephen who was one of the seven that was chosen to um, uh, uh, distribute food to the widows, right? So some argue that he was a deacon. I'm not sure that he was a deacon, but he, he had been set apart for that job. But he, he wasn't an apostle. He was this regular believer like, like, like all of us. Um, and... Philip boasted. Just, but unlike Simon, who boasted about himself, right? Uh, Philip boasted about Jesus. Simon exercised power. He was even called the great power uh, of God. Uh, he had the title, but Philip actually had the power. Philip had the power of God. What's the power of God? Saul of Tarsus tells us what the power of God is. He came to know it when he became Paul the Apostle, right? And writes in Romans the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Philip knew the power of God because he knew the gospel. Simon was about himself. That's clear. Philip was about everybody else. Philip went to the people Simon would never deal with and apparently didn't deal with because there were a lot of people who should have been cured by Simon, obviously, who weren't. But why would Simon go to them? Right, The demon-possessed, the paralyzed, the lame. Because of those conditions, they were poor, they were marginalized. They couldn't do anything for Simon. And Simon was about Simon. I'll deal with people that will help me, but I'm not going to invest in people that can't help me, that can't pay me. But Philip did. Why? Why did Philip do that? Why did Philip go there? Because he's full of the spirit of Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus does, right? He goes to the poor. He goes to the marginalized. Goes to the sick, the lame. That's who Jesus is. Um, And as a result, right? As Philip followed Jesus, his life was transformed. And he was used to transform other people's lives to bring joy and growth to other people, to bring joy and growth to the church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom. Don't you want that? Do you want that? 
then grasp Jesus. And the fundamental truth behind that imperative is that he has grasped you. Right? Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who used all of his divine power to give himself up to grasp you. People that he had set his love upon. Friends, see yourself on the receiving end of that love. Look at the cross, for goodness sake. There, that's where you see it. And when you look there, instead of looking at money and power and beauty, when you look there, you're going to find that, you, that you'll discover that you have everything you need. You'll, you will not feel ugly because you are Jesus' joy. You will not fear weakness. You'll not fear fear. You will not have to exercise power over others. In fact, you'll be able to serve others. Why? Because you know Jesus served you. And even now is with you in power. Not so you can exercise power, but so that you can serve. And you won't feel stupid Or feel like you're a fraud because you're not. You'll feel like what you are, a sinner saved by grace, a welcomed son or daughter. An adopted son or daughter, welcomed home. Friends, that's real freedom. That's where real freedom comes from. It's finding Finding everything we need, not in ourselves and the things that build up ourselves, which will lead us us into being bitter and small and not free. But if we find those things in Christ, then we'll be free indeed. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this... Amazing story about Philip and Simon. Um, And I pray, Lord, you know, I I see a lot of Simon in me, uh, even though, Lord, I know you. Um, And help me and help my brothers and sisters here to do what Simon wouldn't do. And that is when when we are tempted, when we actually fall off of following you and go to things like money and power and the applause of other people. Lord, help us to pray and ask for your forgiveness, to do what Simon wouldn't do. And thank you for the absolute assurance that you will always forgive us, that you always have mercy on us, and that you will pick us up, not let us fall headlong, but you'll hold us up and draw us along, and that you'll get us finally home. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom we have in being your servant. Thank you that in you we know we have everything. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. 
New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.